Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. Today, I am happy to host Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis, United States Army retired. Lieutenant Colonel Davis has four deployments under his belt. He deployed to Desert Storm in 1991, where he was a key participant in the famous Battle of the 73 Easting, something as a tank officer I studied quite extensively. He also deployed to Afghanistan in 2005, back to Iraq in 2009, and to Afghanistan again in 2010 to 2011. In the course of those deployments, he earned a Bronze Star for Valor for the Battle of 73 Easting and was awarded another Bronze Star medal for his actions in Afghanistan in 2011. And I like this from your biography on the Defense Priorities website. It says, Davis gained some national notoriety in 2012 when he returned from Afghanistan and published a report detailing how senior U.S. military and civilian leaders told the American public and Congress the war was going well, while in reality it was headed to defeat. And events since have confirmed his analysis was correct. I don't think I've ever read words that ring more true than that. But you also recently published a new book called The 11th Hour in 2020 America, How America's Foreign Policy Got Jacked Up and How the Next Administration Can Fix It. So, Danny Davis, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, great. Thanks for having me here. I'm really, I'm really glad to talk about it. Well, excellent. Well, as your Defense Priorities biography said, you gain notoriety and in some circles infamy for your views on Afghanistan after your experiences there in 2010 and 11. So let's go back a little bit and set the stage for the benefit of the audience. In late 2009, President Obama travels to West Point to address the cadets there. And during that now infamous speech, he announced the Afghanistan surge. The Obama administration viewed the Iraq war as the bad war, uh, which had been a big mistake and distracted from the Afghanistan war, which they viewed as the good war. So their policy was to pull all the troops from from Iraq, concentrate on Afghanistan and pull out a victory there. Uh, We had the big surge there of 30,000 troops, uh, which uh, you were a part of where you deployed there in 2010. Can you explain your experiences and what you observed during that deployment? Yeah, and, and actually, let me let me back up just a wee bit before uh, uh, President Obama's December 1st uh, West Point speech. And that's into earlier in 2009 when he shortly after he assumed office and uh, he had approved a surge of uh, officially 17,000 to add to the number of troops. Turned out to be 20,000 when you get all the enablers put in there. And so that was somewhere around March or April, I believe, in that timeframe. Now that was that was actually what the previous commander had asked for, but then they decided that he really wasn't the man for the job. And so they're gonna get Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal to get the job, who was part of this success of the 2007 Iraq surge. Well, after he gets there and, and after he gets those additional 20,000 troops, he 
you know, surreptitiously uh, someone, probably him, but we don't know, leaked the, a, a secret uh, analysis he had done that said, holy cow, if we don't get another 40,000, the whole war is going to be lost and it's just going to be disaster and all this kind of thing. And, you know, even, even from what I had already known from my three combat deployments up to that point, I knew that the chances of that happening were, were just really, really low, that that would succeed because the fundamental reasons why it had already been a complete military failure for nearly a decade up to that point were, were self-evident and just pour, shoveling more coal onto a fire is just going to make it hotter, but it's not going to burn the thing out because it's just not how it works. And uh, so I actually wrote a, a, an analysis uh, while I was on, on some uh, on a medical rehabilitation site to the Washington, D.C. area, I was actually assigned to the Defense Intelligence Agency for a period of time. And while I was there, uh, I, I took exam or opportunity to lay out fundamentally why this new surge that was being proposed. This was in October, so still uh, two months before it was actually announced. And I said, look, here are the fundamental reasons why we're in this trouble. Instead of going big, another 40,000, I think we should go deep is what I said at the time. It's like, if you need to do something, then we'll just do some uh, counter-terror thing, something that's just actually focused on what may be a threat to the United States at that time. And I said, if you go big, here's what you can expect. And I listed five or six potential fallouts that could happen if we did that. And pretty much that's exactly what happened. Now, later on, after, I, after uh, the sturge had begun, about six or so months later, I hear David Petraeus uh, and Michelle Flournoy in, in congressional testimony telling America, telling the United States Congress that things were going well, that actually they had arrested the momentum of the Taliban and reversed it in some areas. And the, the progress was uh, fragile, but it was still real. And, you know, and we just need to keep it going. And so and I, and I remember thinking, well, OK, I guess I was wrong. I mean, because that's what he's saying. And I mean, they're certainly not going to say something that's not true. So. Okay, great. And then about a few months after that, then I come down on orders to go to Afghanistan. So I'm actually excited about it, uh, to be frank. Uh, you know, as a former tanker, if you're in the service and you're gonna, you're designed to go in to win this to the sound of the guns. You're supposed to follow. That's what you do. And so, and if it was going well, if it was going to be won, I actually wanted to be a part of that. I, I wanted to be a part of, of the success and the widening this thing down so that you know, America would be safe and that our troops would no longer be at unnecessary risk. But when I got there, uh, I, I began to see almost immediately because my job took, required me actually to go out to the point of the spear all over Afghanistan, uh, everywhere that the army was in, in the, the, the Northeast, the East and the Southeast, uh, everywhere except where the Marine Corps were, I, I was required to go on the ground and talk to the guys who were physically doing the fighting. And, and I could see from the very beginning, the very first mission, which is in December 2010, that everything that we'd been told was simply not true. And the more progress I made, the more uh, patrols I went on, the more people I talked to, it, it just became greater and more plainly evident that there, the exact opposite was the truth that actually we were losing even more because we had simply put more targets on the ground as, as many predicted that if you just put more people out there, all you're going to do is get more casualties, but you're not going to win the war because, you know, as you probably know, well, you know, that that's not how combat against uh, insurgents are won. Now this isn't like world war two 
uh, or not even like Desert Storm, where you have an enemy army and you bring your army and you sweep across the plains and you have big fights and whoever wins uh, is the victor and the other side is loser and the war's over. This is something that you don't even know who the enemy is because the guy that you see farming across the, the field from you may just be a farmer and maybe a victim, or he may be a Taliban. And as soon as the sun goes down, he's going to come and plant a bomb under your truck. You, you just never know. And it's impossible to know. So unless you're willing to just wipe everyone out, which God forbid should ever happen in the United States, and it won't, then it cannot be militarily won. And, and so that the book really just describes in detail all the things that I observed throughout that entire uh, 12-month period that I was there of exactly why that is. So that anyone, even if you don't have a military experience, you can read the book and you can see, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. I can understand why that wouldn't work. And then it's going to prompt the question, well, then how come these other guys who do see that don't come to the same observation? Because there's one thing I can tell you that, and, and you've seen the stats, that they're all over the place, that the American people are, every year that goes on, the number goes higher and higher and higher of those who think this war is not worth fighting and we need to end it. Most people don't really know why that is. Other than they see that despite all these claims of progress every year, and that's going all the way back a full decade to the one I just mentioned, yet you see that it never succeeds. It never ends. We never win. And so this book will kind of fill in the gap to show you why that is so that you can understand the, the fundamentals underneath why your good assessment, just as a regular person seeing this lack of success, this can give you a greater uh, visibility on why that is and actually reinforce your right position. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's funny that you mentioned being excited about a deployment. I, I deployed to Afghanistan two years later in 2013, and I had the same feelings. I was excited to go. I was originally slated to deploy as an advisor, but then the decision was made to cancel all the Kandak or battalion-level advisor missions after my team had already completed the majority of our training. So we were all sent back to our units, but I still ended up in Afghanistan two weeks later as an individual augment to Regimental Combat Team 7 in Helmand Province. I, I didn't have the same experiences that you did because I spent my entire deployment manning the radios, as it were, behind a bunch of computer screens in the Combat Operations Center, moving information from one command echelon to another. But in the course of doing that, I largely came to the same conclusions that you did. Your work had already come out, so I already expected the realities on the ground not to match the official statements, but I didn't expect the mismatch to be too bad. But as I read all the reports coming in and gained an understanding of what we were really doing on the ground, the futility of the entire exercise became hugely apparent. And so I had a similar epiphany to yours, which was to realize that not only were we not accomplishing what we said we were accomplishing, but that we were what we were doing was actually counterproductive. Uh, and at that point, I made up my mind that we needed to get out of, of Afghanistan three years ago, basically. But I was not quite as vocal about it uh, when when I got home. Uh, but when you came home, you explained your views very publicly. So I'm interested to know, what was it that made you decide to do that? And can you describe your experiences as, 
well, not not exactly whistleblower because I know you're not a fan of that term, but just as a truth teller, explaining to the American people what the real situation was based on your experiences. Yeah, that, that's a great question because that that's important to understand is the process that led me to the actions that I did. Because, I mean, you, you just got to know, it don't matter if you're in the military or not, nobody in any profession wants to put their career at risk or wants to put themselves into a furnace that you know you're going to get you know, lots of heat on and possibly even some real trouble. Nobody wants to do that. So that by itself should tell you that the compulsion had to have been really high. And that was the case here. Now, as I mentioned already in the previous segment there, you know, I got over there expecting things to be good. I saw pretty quickly that they weren't. And the initial reaction was just one of, you know, you know, disappointment. And then it kind of turned to disgust a little bit. This like, man, how can these guys keep saying this? But I didn't even have the thought of that I'm going to do or say anything. Uh, that began to change in late spring of that year when there was a certain operation uh, that took place that uh, was one of the biggest casualty producers that that we had during the time that I was there. There was a number of uh, U.S. troops that were killed and, and quite a few that were wounded in a single engagement, which was by itself very unusual. <clears throat> and the public story was that... Uh, told by the commanding general, who, who I won't talk about here personally, uh, but he came out and said, well, you know, this was a tragedy. It, it was really sad that we, you know, had such a profound loss here, but these men can, you know, their relatives can have comfort in knowing that they sacrificed their lives for America and that they, they did a tremendous good for even the Afghan people and that they dealt a serious, def- devastating blow to the Taliban and, you know, it's going to it's continuing on and we're moving towards winning and all that. And then I found out because I had access to the classified story, what really happened. And then my blood starts boiling, not just disgust or, or you know, embarrassment, but just boiling because I know that they that that mission accomplished absolutely nothing. And what made it worse is that they knew that it was going to accomplish nothing before they went in there, essentially. Now, I don't know all the reasons why they chose it, so I, I won't even speculate on that. Maybe they, in their mind, had some good reason. I, I don't know. What I can tell you, though, is absolutely, is that there was every fundamental military reason in the world that would have conclusively led anyone to realize that there was nothing to gain here. That whatever you would do, however many Taliban you killed, and to be honest, that it, to be fair, we killed... I believe somewhere between 80 and 100, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a large number of Taliban who were killed in the operation. Problem is, we've known this all along, is it doesn't matter how many you kill, they're always going to be replaced almost immediately and very often in higher numbers than you took them out. And so you can also see that, uh, which I discovered there, is that a similar operation had been done less than a year before that in the exact same spot and the expected happened. The Afghan troops who were there supposed to be on a co-mission with us ran at the first sight of trouble, leaving us to fight, do all the fighting by ourselves. And even in that engagement, we lost some killed and wounded. We still set them up perfectly to defend the area so that they could hold on to the terrain that we've won. And because, and I actually cover this in the book, uh, because of some rumors that in the area that the Taliban were going to come back, caused those guys who were in defensive positions, well-equipped and defended to run away and just leave. And so they abandoned the place. So the Taliban just walked back in. They didn't even have to fight for it. And it was as though we'd never been there. That was the year before. 
Well, this time they didn't even even pretend they were going to leave somebody there. They just went in to do the operation, killed a bunch of people, left. And just like before, less than three months later, it was as though we'd never been there. The Taliban came back and we never went back. So that whole thing, it, it, this both of those operations were as though we had never been there. So what's permanent is the loss of life that America suffered in that. What's permanent is the family members that were wiped off of the face of the earth by, by the, the loss of those combats of American moms, dads, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, uh, friends, all that. Thousands of lives, or, or at least hundreds of lives, were permanently altered for a mission that had no bearing on American national interest. No help to our country. It didn't even have help to the Afghans because it was meaningless in the strategic sense of the war. And that was evident before we took the first shot. We should have known that. So you, then you have to ask the question, then why are we even doing this? And now then that's that's starting to get to my soul, not just my my uh, you know my emotions. And so now I'm starting to think somebody's got to say something about this. But but again, I, I mean it's it's only an idea in the back of my mind because I mean that's just not what we do. You you know as more than anybody, we have a, a dedication to the US Army or the US Marine Corps in your mind. And all of us have an, an allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and you know it's it bred into us rightly so to obey the orders of those above us to do the, our best to accomplish whatever mission we're given no matter how hard it is no matter how you know crazy it may seem if we're given a mission we got to try to accomplish it but inherent in that actually a, an indistinguishable component is that okay but we also have an obligation to our brothers and sisters on the team in the service there that we won't throw their lives away for something that doesn't matter. We won't risk their lives in something that doesn't even have a chance of success. We will only do that in the event that, okay, this furthers the actual objective and, and at least has a shot of working because I'm, I, I bet you're just like me that you knew when you signed up that there was some day that you may have to take an action that could either result in some of your subordinates dying because of an order you gave or that you could die because of an order that somebody else gave and you're okay with that. You've made your peace with that and you're perfectly fine because you have higher ideals in mind. That's one of the great things about uh, American men and women in the uniform that I, I still admire to this day. But we have to get to the point to where we don't just casually throw those lives away for something that doesn't matter because of optics, because it may look good, or because we think no one else is gonna know. And again, I, I don't know all the reasons why they may have done things all I know is what the fundamentals showed. So that's now we're into the summer <clears throat> and, and I'm, I'm starting to get really disturbed. Then I go on another operation in, the, in uh, Kandahar, actually, Kandahar province down in the southern, in the middle of the, the hot summer, uh, went on this just uh, sultry day. It was, I believe, 116 degrees. And, you know, we're wearing 80 pounds of gear. We go on this long patrol. And, uh, <clears throat> we were setting up in this group of buildings. Uh, that we're gonna that they're gonna make the new forward position for that section for that uh, battle group there as they were trying to continue to push the Taliban further out and further out. So they went on another joint patrol, and the U.S. and the, and the Afghan forces were supposed to operate in there and, and to take care of uh, you know clearing the thing out of any IEDs that were probably there because there had been a fight there the day before, uh, and then set up a new defensive position with machine gun outlets and whatever so that they could have control and domination over that area. And then later on, they would do 
you know, hopscotch and continue that process. Well, the day we arrived, or the moment we arrived, all the Afghan troops went straight to one of the bombed out uh, parts of the house in the shade and went to sleep. I mean, they just went straight. They didn't even attempt to do anything. And it's, it's not like they rested a while and then joined. They, they never did anything. They were totally content with letting all the Americans who did exactly what you're supposed to. Nobody rested. Nobody did anything except immediately went to work, clearing the thing, doing all the military tasks you're supposed to, getting the thing defensible and everything ready to go. And in the process of doing that, the, the staff sergeant who was in charge of the patrol uh, pointed out to me, he goes, yeah, you, you see that uh, those two kids over there, they, they had taken a, a lunch break at one point and were, were eating their food and, while others were still on uh, defensive positions. Uh, and he goes, those two guys are, are just really great. He said that the one kid there on the left, he said he was uh, he had some real challenges earlier in his career and had made some big, huge mistakes and had been punished for it. But he said instead of just, you know, like being upset about it, or whatever, he said he showed great strength of character and just accepted responsibility for what he'd done, had been now one of his best soldiers and is doing the best job that he could. Uh, you know, it was just beaming about him, whatever. And then this, and he told me a, a different story about the other kid that was there with him. And he said, those two are like really good friends. And um, I don't know, there's just something about him that just got my attention. I actually took some pictures of him uh, during the time that I was there. And, uh, and it was about a month and a half after that, that I was back at my headquarters at Bagram. And I go to the chow hall one day and I see the, the stars and stripes sitting there as I always did when I walked into the, to the mess hall. And I think in big, huge block letters, it said something like, they're all dead or everyone's dead, something to that effect, you know, big, huge letters. And, and you see this picture of this mangled heap that used to be a, an MRAP. And so I was like, oh, you know, you, of course, you always are hurt anytime that happens. And I start reading. I'm like, wait a minute. This is the unit that I was with, you know, just recently. And the more I read and then it talked about that all five of the crew members had been killed and that no one survived. And two of those five were the two men that that sergeant had beamed about. And now it's more personal. These are somebody that I actually knew. It wasn't any close friends, but I had met them. I knew who they were. I knew their personal stories. And, and, and my heart just ached when I read that. I just felt sick. <clears throat> and these guys and some of the other people in there, as happened in 100%, 100% of the, of the patrols I went on, I got it was one version or another of we don't really know why we're here. This doesn't seem to have any purpose. Uh, we're just doing what we're ordered, but it's, it's like having your fist in a bucket. When your fist goes into a bucket of water, nothing can stop your fist from going in there. And that water will just roll out of the way and, and it's powerless to stop you. But the minute your hand comes out of that bucket, the water rolls right back in and it's as though your hand was never there. They said, that's kind of how it is in Afghanistan. While we're there, we can do whatever we want. All of our operations are relative successes, but then we end up leaving and it's as though we were never there. And why do we sacrifice? Why do we leave behind some of our brothers and sisters? Why do we have other ones go back with, with you know, arms and legs blown off? Other ones with traumatic brain injuries, others with PTSD, others who go home and commit suicide. I'm sick and tired of all the stories I keep hearing about guys who came back and now then they're suffering through their friends who have committed suicide and they struggle with it themselves. And all of this stuff just start winding up on me. And, and now that it's not just, man, someone should say something. Now it's like, how dare you not say something? You have knowledge. You know what the truth is. And, and if you say, oh, I'm not, 
I, I don't want to do anything because it's just going to get me in trouble and it's not going to make any difference, which was a thought that occurred to me, which is what I expected to happen, even though I wished it hadn't. Have, but I, I mean, realistically, you don't think that you're saying something is going to change national policy. It's not like the president's going to do something. But it, it became such a strong compulsion that morally I, I, I was not able to keep my tongue. It was so strong that I was unable to, even though I knew the cost could be really high because some of my people that I later subsequently met who had been whistleblowers in different categories had actually paid a profound price, personal price. I mean, it really had been abused by the federal government in various agencies uh, that, that just devastated their lives. And I knew that was entirely possible, but, but ultimately I was incapable of just going on about my business and just keeping going on with my career like nothing had happened. So when I got back, uh, you know, I put, I've been taking notes, of course. And when I got back, I put it into a cogent uh, couple of different forums. One was a public record, which ended up being published in the Armed Forces Journal. And the second one was a classified version, sort of an annex, uh, because you can't mix the two or else I, I, I would violate the rules and I'm not, I'm not going to violate the rules. I'm going to do it the way you're supposed to. And so that's exactly what I did. I submitted that to the uh, inspector general of the army, uh, you know, to look into these things because the classified stuff had a lot stronger, clear evidence that people were lying, but nothing ever happened with that, of course. But, uh, but once I did that, then, um, you know, then I, I did, uh, I did catch some flag, but uh, I, God willing, or thank God, nothing seriously happened. And so I didn't end up paying that huge of a personal price. It is these, you know, didn't get fired or thrown in jail or whatever else. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But uh, that's pretty much the basis of uh, why I did what I did. Well, you, you touched on this a little bit in the course of that about why other people didn't speak up. But I've always been struck by the fact that you, who had just been promoted to lieutenant colonel, uh, and it's always amazed me that it was a lieutenant colonel who did that and not a general or even a full bird colonel who spoke up in the way that you did. Why is it that you were the one who had to do that and it wasn't someone at a much higher rank who might have been able to really influence those strategic policy decisions? Yeah, it definitely isn't because they didn't know because I, I came across more than one general officer that, that actually was aware uh, of it. And I could see his frustration in some of the things we were talking about, even while I'm on the ground there. Uh, and there was many others that did as well. And, and, you know, in the aftermath of all this, when I actually went public, I, I got a bunch of, of emails and, and messages and whatnot from some soldiers and all but one of them was, uh, you know, very affirming and like, oh, you just said what we all thought inside and we knew what was going on. Uh, the only exception to that was one guy I'd actually mentioned by name in the report and well, he didn't like that, but so I guess you can understand that. But uh, but they know, and and there was, and I, I'm sorry, the name escapes me at the moment. But there was one general after he resigned, retired, uh, three or four years later, uh, actually came out and wrote a book and you know accepted responsibility. We we this was a disaster. Afghanistan was a loss. We didn't we didn't do things right. It, it was a you know whatever. And uh and and I at the time I'm like okay, well I'm glad that a general officer is now saying this because he was, you know, he was kind of shunned among his fellow general officers, but I'm like, dude, do that when it matters. If an, if a serving general comes out and says that, I mean, it would have profound implications and reverberations far more than some, you know, obscure Lieutenant Colonel. I mean, I got a little bit, but 
you know, then the news cycle went on and all the generals circled up and said, no, we don't agree with him. He's a nice guy, but we don't agree with his assessment. We're very comfortable with ours. Anyway, what was the next question? And that was, that was about the end of it. Right. So, uh, and, and again, you kind of touched on this already with the bucket of water analogy, which is a really good way of describing the futility of what we did in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But do you think any major military power like the United States can find success in a place and a conflict like Afghanistan? We can succeed anywhere that there is an attainable military mission given. And when we first went to Afghanistan, President Bush gave us an attainable military mission, which was to uh, devastate Al-Qaeda and to uh, diminish uh, the Taliban's ability to, to support them so that we would minimize the chances of that there being any further attacks that was spawned out of there. Those, all of those missions were attainable. They were completely fulfilled by like the, the spring of 2002. And by the summer of 2002, we could easily and absolutely should have withdrawn our troops because there was no more enemy to fight. Al-Qaeda had been scattered to the four winds. Most of them were in, in uh, Pakistan. The Taliban had been literally wiped from the face of the earth as an entity. They, they weren't defeated. They were eliminated. They didn't exist in any form by the summer. They had all just melted back, either been killed or been melted back into their populations and had just gone on with their lives. And if we had left then, if that had been the end of it, then none of these things that happened since then would have happened. They would have formed their own government and they would be just like any of the other countries in that region there. But instead, we continued to fight for a while with really no mission. And then Bush inexplicably in 2007 made it an outright overt nation building where we're going to bring democracy and all that. And those are missions that cannot be obtained militarily. I don't care how big your army is. You can't force culture to change to fit into a shape of your preference because you want it to and and undergird that with military power it is a physical impossibility it can't be done and yet obama when he came in he just continued on and continued to give upper or uh, mission statements that couldn't be attained militarily and and i will say to his to his defense uh he got a lot of help in, in crafting those from uh bill gay or uh, robert gates i'm sorry uh petraeus uh Secretary Clinton and uh, and uh, uh, oh, what's his face? The, the Stan McChrystal. Those all linked arms and said, "Yes, we can definitely do this." Because at the time, Petraeus was the commander of CENTCOM, and they all said, "Absolutely, this is something we can do, and we can get it done in 18 months, and we can leave and all that." And, you know, to his credit, Obama, who didn't have the personal experience, said, "Are you sure? No one's going to tell me in 18 months from now we have to stay longer." Oh yes, absolutely, sir. And so he gave missions that he was advised by the highest ranking people that could be done. And of course, it couldn't be done. And they should have known that. But, you know, and now here we still are that we've begun now our officially our 20th year. And President Trump says that we're going to be out by Christmas. But he also said we're going to be out of Syria three times and we're still there. So, you know, proof in the pudding, as they say. So I'd like to see it turn into reality. But right now we don't even have a mission. There's no mission that's militarily attainable that we're doing as we fight con you know battles almost every day as we just did in in uh helmand province a few days ago big big strike so all you can do is tactical activity just tasks yes i can conduct airstrikes i can 
help these guys on the ground and, and do this. And we can give and we can do all of those things really well, but they don't accomplish anything. And so it's not like if you do this good enough, then the world will be over. There's no such criteria. We're simply doing operations because we're there. So you've got to ask the question, and, and I hope more Americans start asking the question, if we're not even in search of an objective that can result in a win or an end of the war, then why the hell are we there? What are we there for? We need to pull our troops out so we don't waste any more lives, any more tens of billions of dollars every year for something that doesn't even affect our national security, but does weaken us and does result in more Americans getting killed and wounded. Right, right. And very well said, which leads to the the next obvious question. I know that President Obama wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, and Donald Trump has said again and again that he wants to. So why is it why why do presidents receive so much pushback from the national security establishment at that level? Why is it so hard to end this war? Yeah, fear is is the number one reason. Probably the second one is that a lot of people who have uh, something financially to gain by the perpetuation of it are certainly under the under the radar and, and beneath the surface trying to egg that on. But at the at the politician level, I think the, the primary driver is fear. And that's being fed all the time. It happened to Obama and it, and it happened to, to Trump when he was trying to, to get us out of Afghanistan in 2017 when he first got in and then in Syria as well, is that everyone is always telling him, oh, my gosh, you can't do this or uh, there's going to be more terrorist attacks and it's going to be your fault. It's going to be on your watch and you're going to get blamed for it. That's why Obama went back into Iraq after he'd gotten out in 2011. He went back in 2014 because ISIS took over and he was told, man, you know, if you don't do anything, this ISIS is going to turn into this big thing and then it's going to launch more attacks. And without really thinking it through rationally, he just it was easy to give in to that. And yeah, we'll send uh, 50 troops here and then 150 and all right, another 500 until now that you got 5000 there. And, and, the, and of course, there's no mission there, no attainable mission either. They can just do operations. And as I've written many times, here's the, here's the reality of it. ISIS did not threaten Washington, D.C. Or, or America, per se, or even our troops in the region. They threatened Baghdad. They threatened Damascus and to lesser extents, uh, Istanbul and several of the other uh, Arab capitals in the region. They were a threat to them. Those are the people that needed to figure it out. Consider this. When we went in there, and, and especially when we added Syria to the list, we helped Bashar al-Assad. I mean, let that sink in for a second, because we've gone in there and, and took out, you know, carved out this massive section of their country, working with the Syrian Democratic Forces. We have wiped out one of his biggest, maybe his number one biggest enemy, ISIS, and got them, you know, and took all the land away from them. And now that it's in the hands of the Syrian Democratic Forces, which eventually will make some kind of deal with Damascus, and then they'll they'll shut that down. So as, as soon as we leave, now then uh, Syria will again have to be responsible for all the area that right now we're taking off of his plate and making it so he doesn't have to handle that. And we help Russia out in the same way, which is crazy because we're not at threat, at, at risk. Damascus is, and they're going to continue to be. We have the ability to defend ourselves no matter where in the world any uh, – terrorist uh, threat may arise, and we do it every day in places all over the globe. Just because we have troops in a handful of places, that doesn't mean that's the only threat that we face from potential terrorist strikes. They come from everywhere we're not. And so we successfully defend against that whole array of threats 
on a daily, hourly basis from everywhere around the globe with our unblinking intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance eyes, and then the ability to launch global uh, targeted strikes against any direct threat to us, no matter where in the world they are. We've recently seen that with the taking out al-Baghdadi, uh, we've taken out bin Laden in, in Pakistan before that. Uh, to you, know, you can see that when we find the threat, we know where they are, we can go take it out. We don't need any troops on the ground there. So the idea that if we don't send troops back to Iraq and, and Syria in 2014, 2015, like we did, or the thought that if we withdraw from Afghanistan now or from Syria now or from Iraq now that, oh, there'll be this big threat. No, there won't be a big threat. And, and if I could just say one final thing on this piece here, is that under uh, left unstated under these these cries of fear that oh my gosh if you do this it's going to raise the threat is the implicit understood belief that the troops on the ground there do save us now that they they protect us now and I can tell you flat out from having been in Iraq and Afghanistan twice each that is a complete and utter myth those troops don't do anything to keep us safe here now because. In 2010, when I was there at the very height of the surge, where there was 140,000 NATO and U.S. And, and US troops, plus another 300,000 Afghan troops, there were still vast sections of the country that were completely off limits to us. They always had the ability to have you know, areas of their own, always. And of course, now it's even greater because the Taliban has control over more territory than at any time since 2001. So you see, even with our, our, our presence on the ground continually, we did nothing to stop that, and, and we aren't going to. So leaving isn't going to add to the threat because we already have defense against it with our ISR strike capability. And so once you understand that, that we've never been safe because of these troops and that we'll always be safe with, with the, our, our global ability to defend ourselves from everywhere, then you realize, you know what? We don't need those troops there at all. Let's bring them home to where they can do some good for our country. And that's where I hope we end up. Exactly. But so at the end of your book, you offer a set of policy recommendations for American foreign policy moving forward. Now, not to give the, the ending away or anything like that, but could you talk a little bit about your vision for a future American foreign policy? Yeah. Here, here's the reality of the situation, borne out by physical evidence on the ground. There is no state, there is no country that threatens the United States right now. And I'm, I'm including uh, China, I'm including Iran, Russia, North Korea, every single one of those org uh, countries are uh, deterred from launching attacks against our country or our, our assets or our military because of our profound uh, military strength in both conventional and nuclear. That's just a fact. There is no country that's gonna say, hmm, you know what? I don't like America, so I'm going to attack them. I'm going to shoot something because they know for guaranteed certain that our response will be overwhelming. It will be out of all proportion to whatever they do and that all they can do is lose. That means Putin understands that he can't just you know, bring all of his tanks and start rolling to the West. He knows that's impossible or he would be wiped out. Xi Jinping understands that he can't just like order his Navy to go out and start taking the Philippines or attacking you know, some of our other allies, South Korea, Japan, et cetera, because he knows for a fact that we will wipe him out because we can do that. However, that doesn't mean that we can't be stupid and poke our noses in the one area where China would have a, a military advantage 
because they have built the what's called an A2AD area defense area uh, uh, access denial into their area there. So in the area around their country, they have built very strong, very uh, modern, technologically sophisticated ability to defend against an American attack. So they've never made any secrets about the fact that they may one day reunify Taiwan by force. And so in the possibility that, that happens and that we support Taiwan, they have built this great defense capability. If we send even our great military into the teeth of that defense, if we impale ourselves on that, that defense that they have there, we're going to suffer tremendous loss. It's possible we might not even win such a war. We might go to help Taiwan and not even succeed. And now what are you going to do? Are you going to elevate it to nuclear and, and sacrifice some number of American cities where millions would die? I mean, it sounds like an, an, an obvious answer, but is it? I don't know, because when people get in the heat of the moment, then they start doing things that don't make any sense. And so my whole philosophical, in terms of my geostrategic viewpoint on what we should do, is to keep a very strong and robust military. I'm absolutely not anti-war. I'm for a strong, well-funded, well-trained, well-equipped military to defend our country within the confines of the Constitution and the separation of powers and all that. I'm 100% American on that point. But we don't need to go in search of enemies. We don't need to constantly deploy troops all over the place. We don't need to keep doing all these operations right up into the face of China, right up into the face of, of, uh, of Putin in, in Russia constantly doing this so-called max pressure thing on, on both North Korea and especially Iran, because it, it, the chances are it's going to actually precipitate a war, not defend against one. Our regular military can deter all four of those potential adversaries, and they'll never attack us. Now, if you take that mental construct and say, all right, I'm going to have this really strong military that will prevent you from ever attacking me, and, and guarantee that you'll be the one who suffers if you do. Now then, I've got the ability to spend, you know, I don't have to spend as much on keeping troops in whatever the number is today, 800 some odd bases all over the world, some crazy thing like that. I can spend money at home where we're desperately in need of it. And I can, by having fewer enemies in the world, I can now engage in more effective uh, diplomatic activity and more effective economic activity. I mean, the, the idea that we could improve our economy, improve our security by doing less in places where it's not necessary should seem to me to be something that would be profoundly attractive to the most Americans. And I think uh, that, you know, the polls and trends are showing that that's exactly the case, that intuitively they understand that's the case. But, you know, but they may not have a lot of the, the tools and the knowledge and the understanding of specifically why that is, which is another reason why I've written this book. But, you know, and, and then you can look at individual uh, policies within each of those. But that's the, the, the general issue is that by maintaining a strong military and by uh, prioritizing diplomacy and economic engagement, we can be far safer, spend far less money or at least have an ability to, to help our own people in places where, where they're in desperate need of it right now, especially financially with all this coronavirus fallout, et cetera. So yep. that's a far, far better way to live. And, and I, I really wish that uh, more people would give that some some consideration. Yes, absolutely. Well, I've long since come to the realization that often the best course of action is no course of action. But that very much goes against the institutional culture of the military and the national security community at large. So uh, 
I think you have your work cut out for you. But uh, Danny Davis, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, your book, The 11th Hour in 2020 America, is now available. Uh, Danny Davis, you, you, you're a great American. Please keep up the good work, and I'm sure we will speak again in the not-too-distant future. Perfect. Look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Well, that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.